Are you ready to become awesomer? Hello everyone, this is Umar Hamid, your host, and welcome to the No Limit Selling Podcast, where industry leaders share their tips, strategies, and advice on how to make you better, stronger, faster. Get ready for another episode. Hello, everyone. Today, I have the pleasure of having Joan London with me here today. Joan, welcome to the program. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for asking me. One of the hardest things to do uh, when you're writing a book, other than writing it and going through the editorial process, which is like horrible and uh, demeaning, is coming up with chapter titles that would actually get somebody to start leafing through it and buy the book. And I think you've done the best job ever. (laughs) For example, not only is my short-term memory bad, so is my short-term memory, which is hilarious. <laughs> Friends are therapists you can drink with. And last but not least, sometimes I laugh so hard, tears run down my legs. And the book's about aging. So <laughs> what made you be so creative just on that element? Well, I think I'm one of those people that when I am looking at a book and trying to decide if I want to read it, this is more in the self-help kind of a Um, realm, I look at the table of contents. And I look to see if that kind of invites me um, to want to read that book. So I'm very, very, you know, always like concentrated on those table of contents. And you know, to be very honest, when I started writing this book, my biggest fear was that I wouldn't be able to be funny enough. Because I knew I couldn't write a book about forgetfulness and hot flashes and leaky bladders without a sense of humor. But I didn't really consider myself like, you know, the the jokester of the class. Right. And and it's different, you know, telling jokes is one thing, but being finding humor in life and the travails that we all go through, that's different. And as I sat down and started this book, I I needed to kind of allow myself to think that way. And in order to, in my opinion, to be successful in this book, and um, the more I did it, you know, I always say courage is like a muscle. You have to, it's strengthened by use. And Absolutely. Yeah. And so the more I did it, the more I got comfortable with it. My husband, though, would come through the room and he'd say, what are you writing about today? And I said, pretty much leaky bladders. He, <laughs> he left you, immediately. You say that. You can't say you're leaky bladder. I said, oh, honey, the name of this chapter is I laugh so hard, tears roll down my leg. And he gave me that arched eyebrow, like, are you sure you should be doing this? But that's what connects with the reader, in my opinion. And I think what's interesting is that if you have that in your heart and you write something that isn't that, people can sense it. But when you write what you're feeling, you find your audience. Authenticity is like a magic potion. And it's, it's, it's not abundant in today's world. Everybody lives in this world that they kind of create, you know, who they are on social media. And um, when somebody comes through and you really feel that they're being authentic and almost a little raw and and opening themselves up, that is just incredibly inviting. Um, and I've done that in a lot of my books, but never like this book. This book... Um, you know, maybe it's part partly aging, Umar. I think you do come to a point in life you get where wiser. you're more, yeah, you're more comfortable with life. You're more comfortable with who you are. You're not worried about what everybody's going to think of you. 
because you're going up that ladder and you kind of give yourself permission. Your brain says kind of like, what the heck? Go ahead, say it. You know, you're all you're going to do is connect and nobody, yeah. nobody calls you on it. Everybody loves it. And if you try and be funny and you're not, oh. those jokes fall flat. So I was at a wedding pre-pandemic and the priest that was supposed to do the ceremony, it was a Catholic church, 300 people. And this uh, priest comes up and he says, uh, I just want you to know that I just uh, graduated from seminary, you know, like uh, two months ago. This is my first wedding. And I'm really nervous. And 300 people in that audience fell in love with him because it, he wasn't doing it for sympathy. He was just saying, this is what I'm feeling. And when you connect with who you are, you connect heart to heart. Yep. And it was a perfect example of that. Yes, so that raw honesty. Let me ask you, there was something that I had read that you were asked once by a Hollywood reporter when you were coming back to the show, you know, what's it like coming back to the show as a senior citizen? And the reason I ask you that is this, is sometimes people create a label yeah. and just by them doing it, all of a sudden you start sometimes grab onto it and hold on to it, mm. even though you don't want to. So tell me what that experience was like and how did you shun it out of your mind? Well, it could have been possibly the catalyst for finally dig diving into this book. Um, you know, I had been, you know, at Good Morning America for 20 years, but for the last 10 years or so, I've been doing some special correspondent work for the Today Show. And I had done this series for them that I really was excited about. And it was about the importance of friendship and that human bond. Yes. And I was really excited about this series and they had me go out and do a lot of publicity for it. But when I called in for the interview with the Hollywood reporter, I mean, there was this young guy that answered the phone. I mean, I, I could tell just by his voice, mm -hmm. but I would never have guessed that his first question to me was, what's it going to be like going back to early morning television, Miss London, as a senior citizen? And, you know, I mean, fine, on paper, I am, uh, mm -hmm. really. I just never been called one or probably never really thought of myself as a senior citizen. And the idea that this young guy had probably Googled me, saw my right. age, and then was doing this interview at me as though I was this, I was, I don't know, his description of an older person. And I, it left me, you know, after I hung up thinking, you know, when did I sign into this like category where you know, I, it, to me, that category could mean not as relevant, um, doesn't have as many opportunities open to you, uh, has been, like all these different things. And that's what I felt that he had in his head when he did this interview. And so that's where I started really thinking about examining this concept of age and how we are so married to it in Western civilization. And, and it's, it can be very limiting. You know, the, you could take five women who are all 65, and one could be a marathon runner, another could be a triathlete, another could, could be a total couch potato. But the way the world will describe those five women is a the same. 65 year old woman. And it's probably the least Relevant. relevant descriptive phrase that you could use on any of them. And, you know, you read the book, so you know that I started out by talking about this trip. I took my my teenagers on to Morocco, and we were coming back from a you know camel ride in the Sahara, and we were driving along, and this and our driver saw a, a group of sheep herders, 
Mm-hmm. And he pulled over to the side of the road and he jumped out of the car and he called them over and he asked them if we could go into their tent. And you could see their tent, you know, a few hundred yards off the road. And they said, fine. So we all got out. We went in and he was interpreting and they were telling us about they live this nomadic life, that there's no clocks, no calendars, no anything. They they really just go by the sun and the moon and the stars and the seasons. And when it gets the season changes, they you know, wrap everything up, put it on a donkey and like they head off. And I looked at this, you know, weathered woman that seemed like she was the only woman there, the matriarch. And I asked her how old she was. She had no concept of what I was talking about. None. I mean, they're born out in the desert. There, There's no birth certificate. I got back in the car and I thought, wow. So when the time comes for her to pull down that tent and wrap it all up and put it on a donkey. She's not going to say, gee, am I, you know, too old to do this? She's just going to do whatever, you know, life needs her to do. Allows her to do. Absolutely. Yes. And it was, the, the idea of that was so freeing. And, you know, that's, I never could forget that. Like, why are we so tethered to this number? So it's kind of interesting that we're the products of our environment. Yeah. And part of our environment uh, came from uh, you need to do a 70-hour week, then it was a 40-hour week, but it was your productivity. And everything was judged by the time and the clock. When we were like farmers, none of that mattered. But let me ask you this. Who was the first person that you came across that allowed you to think about aging in a different way? Like somebody that you would have seen and gone, huh? that person is young at heart. They just act that way. Was there a particular person that was a somebody that made you rethink what aging was like? Because you were part of this system that thinks 65 is old. Well, I mean, I would have to say it was the woman on the desert, quite honestly. She's the one that really- Nice. That just was a catalyst for this, like, I mean, I don't mean to be dramatic, but kind of an epiphany. Um, and, you know, we grow up, or certainly you and I did, we grew up in a time- and probably it still happens today, where we hear our mom and our dad say, oh, help Uncle Charlie out of the chair. He's retired. He's old now. He needs help. Slow down. Aunt Harriet can't walk that fast. And we have those out probably hundreds or more hours of programming kind of running in our brain as we become adults. And yes. it, if we allow ourselves to listen to that, the danger in that is that it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy and we can expect, literally expect to start declining and deteriorating. Immediately upon hearing that. What's interesting is the way beliefs work is when there is an important event, meaning making machines, we look at that event, we make meaning of it and it goes in our unconscious and it starts guiding us from there on. And those subtle things that we hear. So I bet you if we got a group of really vibrant, fit senior citizens, a hundred of them, you and I were on stage and I had two flip charts. One I was going to use a red pen with, and you were going to use the one with a green pen. And we said, please complete this sentence. Old people are, and somebody would say motivated, and you would write down motivated on your flip chart and ask the question again. Somebody else would shout something else out that would be positive. And I guarantee 100% after about six or seven positive attributes from a group of people that are active and amazing, then people would start saying stuff like, are a waste of space, can't do anything. Because those beliefs are society's beliefs that even though they're defying it, it's still in their psyche because their parents, yeah. their uncles, their aunts, their teachers, every single 
image you look at is of young, vibrant people and people that are older are not. And that's why I love your book because you approach it from a place of humor that allows people, because this is uh, everyone listening, Joan and I are seeing each other over video conferencing, but I'm holding up a pen and I'm holding it like with a death grip that had you come at this subject that was preachy or just data, people hold on to their belief like this pen, you couldn't grab it away from me. And what your book does is that it loosens their grip on reality and allows them to have the possibility that, you know what, maybe I can go for a walk or maybe I can start doing this. So thank you for for writing that book. Oh, I love hearing that. You know, there is a process as you're writing as to how you're thinking you know, as those words go down on the page or, or on your laptop as, mm-hmm. as we now live. And I always envisioned as I was writing that I was sitting on the edge of a bed with a bunch of girlfriends. We'd gone away on a long, fun girls weekend. And I was talking and I was saying, and guess what else I just found out? I was researching why we have expanding waistlines. And I found out that after you have no more estrogen, so you're not in childbearing years, your body realizes that and it migrates those fat cells to your abdomen. So it's not just that we ate too many Tostitos last year. I mean, when I would learn things through my research, I would be so excited. I couldn't wait to share them. And if you can get it down on the page with that thought process. Yes. That heartfelt emotion. Yeah. People receive it in the same way. You know, I, I, I don't know if you know, but I was um, the daughter. I grew up the daughter as a daughter of a doctor. Mm-hmm. My dad was a surgeon uh, specializing in cancer. Back Is that him in the background? Yes. There's a picture back there. Yes. Yes. And it was at a time, Umar, where there was no chemo. There was no radiation. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there was just surgery. And they were, they were surgeries that, you know, could take a woman's entire front area from the collarbone to the waist, because that's all they could do. I actually remember overhearing a conversation. I wasn't part of it. I was just in the room. And my mom was asking my dad about a friend of hers, a doctor's wife. And my dad said, yes, she has cancer. She has breast cancer, but don't say anything. We're not going to tell her, you know, why upset her? There's nothing we can do about it. That's what it was like back then. They didn't mm-hmm. even tell the woman. And, you know, I would we would go out and about all the time, and I was constantly seeing people come up to my dad and hug him mm-hmm. and say, thank you for saving my wife's life or, you know, my for thanking you for saving my life. And I always said, oh, my God, how could I want to be anything but that? Right. And I always thought I was going to be a doctor. And my dad was unfortunately killed in our private plane. He was returning from speaking at a big cancer convention. And then, you know, I was only 13 years old. When I was going away to college that summer before college, I went to work in a hospital that he mm-hmm. had helped to found and build. <clears throat> sure, I was so sure I was headed toward medicine. And I found out that I just was not going to have scalpels and and needles in my future. So I had to pivot. But I always had it in my heart that what I wanted to do was to help other people live healthy. And I think it might have always been a little regret in the back of my head that I didn't live up to that. Um, But I 
you know, when I left Good Morning America, I got my first laptop. Believe it or not, we never had laptops. We never had right. Google. We never had email. People actually wrote us letters. We got boxes of letters. Um, and I started my website and it just, you know, the, I remember the gentleman who was uh, kind of designing it. He said, you want to call it something? I said, yes, Joan London's Healthy Living. And it just like came out. And everything I've done since Good Morning America over the last 20 years has been in that lane, has been in health dissemination, health information dissemination. And oddly, when I got diagnosed with cancer, that was like kind of a gift from heaven, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. um, I know people sometimes think that that's weird, but it was this opportunity that got dropped in my lap that said, you can pick up the baton and carry it to the finish line. You can you have this unbelievable, unique opportunity to actually carry on your dad's legacy and go out, share your cancer battle, learn as much as you can, share that information, and you'll help other people. And, you know, it certainly changed the trajectory of my career um, in a wonderful way. It's like I got the most important assignment ever in my life. And, right. you know, at the end of the day, at the end of my life, if that's what that little dash is for, I'll be okay with that. It's a happy life. So here's a couple of things. Thank you for sharing that story. I believe every single human being on planet Earth has a purpose in life, and most of us yeah. don't know what it is. And I think you articulated yours was very much to help people. Yeah. And you just did it in different ways. When you were on Good Morning America, sharing stories yeah. and ideas, you were doing it and you're just doing it more on point uh, when it comes to health and wellness. And so A, that. So you're continuing what you're meant to be doing. Yeah. And the second thing is the reason the universe or God or whatever you happen to believe, we have these other 7 billion people is to teach us lessons. And you gave an example of that Bedouin woman in the desert. You said, you know, that was like a meant to be meeting for that one insight. Yeah. And then you going to that hospital yeah. and that experience just basically going, maybe not the right path and then getting cancer that could have been devastating, but seeing it as a lesson. And that's one of the things in mindset and aging is going, huh, what is the universe trying to teach me is trying to teach yeah. you to get out of the wheelchair, go out there, <laughs> live life. Absolutely. You know, I think that there, what's that saying with age comes wisdom? Yes. It, it's almost that there's a point and it's probably at different ages for different people that you come to that is this point where you allow yourself to kind of pause and step back and reflect. It's almost like this inherent need to yes. look back and at your life and and it's a good thing to do because it can make you much more appreciative of the your life well lived and of all the uh, challenges that you've been able to navigate and make it mm -hmm. through to this point. But people need to remember that when you pivot, you need to pivot back <laughs> and look forward. And by reflecting, you can sometimes say to yourself, and I think this is one of the most important questions, am I the person I wanted to become? Not, That's a brilliant question. Yeah. I mean, not just, you know, what dreams didn't I accomplish? Because those can quite often help guide you. Because now when you're in your 60s, it's not like you're going to die at 70. Like in yesterday's world, you could live to 95 or 100. So you need Absolutely. to plan for that later life. And that pivot is really important. But you know that it, one of the questions that I suggest in the book that you ask yourself is, did I become the person 
that I hoped to be. Like when you're, when you come to the end of your life and someone reads that eulogy of you, which, Mm -hmm. you know, I ask everybody to, I give them the challenge to write their own obituary and their own eulogy. But imagine that they're up there talking about you. What are they saying about you? Not just that you were a broadcaster. What kind of person were you? Were you always there for your friends? Were you a compassionate individual? Did you always bring light into a room? Whatever you would like for them to be saying, you have until now, from now until then, to work on that. Brilliant. I, I really think it's an important question that we all need to ask ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. What's interesting is when uh, the U.S. was losing the Vietnam War, not that we ever won it, when uh, Montgomery came and took over the effort, everyone was despondent, all his generals, and he made them write an obituary. And when they wrote their obituary, he says, okay, now that the fear of death is over, let's figure out what we need to do. Wow. And so and the second thing that came up was, this is not my creation. I stole it from someone, but I wish I could let you know who said it, but it was the three stages of man. You believe in Santa Claus, you don't believe in Santa Claus, and you are Santa Claus. Oh, I love that. That's great. What you described there was, you know, when you figure out, you know, who's the person I'm meant to be, that's when you're actually being Santa Claus and you're connecting with family and friends and the world and doing what you're supposed to be doing. Well, it's like that wonderful question. It's it's not, life isn't about creating yourself, but finding yourself. And I think that really... Um, is difficult when you're in your 30s and your 40s and even into your 50s because you're running through life so fast. You're, you know, you're, and for like for me, for a working woman, you're answering to so many different needs to your family, to your kids, to, you know, um, your boss and to, for me, for the public. And it's just like, you can't stop and ask yourself these what existential questions, or at least we don't seem to do that. We don't, we should, because I think it would simplify life in massive ways. Because once you figure out why am I here, you can fine tune your career to it or find another career that makes your heart smile. And, but yeah, but when you get more time on your hands, you can do that, right? And look, I mean, I'm, I'm still so incredibly busy. I'm probably almost as busy as I was you know, doing Good Morning America is just at different hours of the day and more civilized. But yes. <laughs> it is somehow there comes a time as you age. To me, this is the silver lining of aging where you're not running to keep up. You somehow, um, even though you can still be incredibly busy and fulfilled and challenged, somehow it just is going at the speed of life instead of always seeming like you're running to catch up with life and it's a more comfortable way to live and it's a and it allows you to really be much more reflective as a person much more appreciative of a person i mean i just find life i when i drive my drive to work which of course i'm not going to my office right now during this time but when i make that drive to my office in the morning it's like about a 15 minute drive through beautiful Greenwich, Connecticut with the trees and I'll see the light coming down through the trees and how gorgeous it is. I'm telling you, I would not have noticed that in my 30s and 40s. I would not have like looked at it and appreciated just the sunlight coming through the through the beautiful trees. And I love being at that point in my life. 
You know what's interesting is, I'm going to tell you a little anecdote, then get to the point. I was interviewing uh, this professor of sales at one of the universities, and he was talking about his current crop of students. And I was thinking, entitled, selfish, kind of group of folks. And I was about to say that, and he's describing them, and this is what he described. He described them as being the most dedicated, hardworking, self-driven group of people that he's had in a long time. And I went, hey, hey hold on a minute. Why? And he says, well, when they were seven years old, six or seven, we went through the financial crash in 07, 08. Oh, yeah. And yeah. they saw their parents losing their jobs, uh, losing their homes. Yeah. And those kids have the depression era mentality. Wow, yes. And so, so I thought, okay, that's interesting. So the reason I bring it up is we're going through a pandemic and kids that are older are probably not going to get it as much. Kids that are six or seven that are seeing mom and dad at the table. Yeah doing hobbies, baking, family's the most important. Because up until now, you know, if you ask the average person, what are the most important things in life? They would say family, work, friends. And that was bullshit because yeah. reality, work was everything. They weren't noticing yeah. anything. And this pandemic has forced us to slow down and kind of go, huh. Yes, absolutely. I think you are right on. Um just even, you know, I keep hearing from different people uh, that they have like walked through their home in a different way because we normally just, it's the roof over our head, but we we rush in and have dinner, go yep. to bed, rush out. And now they're wandering around and all of a sudden they look down and say, wow, that carpet is 18 years old. Maybe I should change it. I mean, they're yeah. little, but... Their, their sensibility, I think our sensibilities are different right now. And certainly um, the family unit, you know, the, mm -hmm. and with my, my, I have teenagers in the house now, four teenagers, two sets wow. of twins, and they're all remote learning. They're on those devices all day long and in their rooms. And, um, you know, I said, I'll say to them, I want to play a board game tonight. And they look at me like I'm, you know, weirdo, gone <laughs> off a rocker. But when they get into it and you get them all, like if you insist and you cajole them, you can usually like um, uh, bribe them with an iTunes card. <laughs> but when, <laughs> know your audience. Yeah. But when they get into it, bribery works, by the way, with teenagers. Uh you can get them. I remember one time I was take. I, we were on a trip and I said, we're going to go out to this Island and we're going to, you can't like pull the boat up to the beach. You're going to have to get out and like walk up to the beach. So you can't take any technology with you. And they said, then what are we going to do? Like, we'll just be bored. And I looked at them and I said, that is our end goal <laughs> <laughs> to be bored on an Island beach. And, you know, it's just, it's a mentality. And I, I worry these days because I'll walk into my daughter's room who's 15 at any time in the afternoon after school's over and I'll start talking to her and she'll say, just, just, just so you know, I, I am on FaceTime with so-and-so and they leave their phone there and it's on a FaceTime and they are hooked up to another person. Mm. And I so worry that they don't know how to be alone. And that's important, in my opinion. Absolutely. I think it's essential because we have three faces. We have uh, what you alluded to earlier. We're so busy trying to look amazing for the Joneses, the Facebook version of us. That's the illusion. Then we have something worse, which is the delusion, who we think we are. Ooh. And then there's the authentic us. And you can't find the authentic us unless you have that alone time and some techniques to kind of go, oh, 
this is yes. who I really am. And once you discover who you are, you don't have the delusion anymore. You get to be who you are. And when you get brave enough, this is what you show the outside world. And we come back full circle to being authentic. Those rare people that we come across that you go, when this person's on stage with 10,000 people, or he's in a hotel meeting a total stranger on the elevator, it's the same human being. Yeah. Well, you know, you heard my reactions. Delusion. Ooh. Yes. And then oh, yeah. authentic. Ah. And yeah, it's a visceral. That's a that was a visceral response, but that's really what I'm talking about. I, you know, I don't look at aging as something that's awful because I'm experiencing it as something affirming and relaxing, and um, allowing myself to ponder more about life and about me, um, things that I wouldn't have been inclined to do. Is I, can, I can blame it on just the fast-paced life, but I just wasn't inclined to do it in my younger years. In fact, you know, I I have just the most incredible um, system here of all the videotapes of me and all the pictures of me mm-hmm. with every celebrity and at every Olympics and every inauguration. And as I look at them sometimes, I think, I barely remember the moment. Yeah. I can't even, like, recall the the minutia of that moment in time and mm-hmm. it's my only regret is that you know yes my life was unbelievable i just went from one exciting point in history to another but they happened so fast that you can yeah. almost not recall the wonderful amazing minutia that was all around you and when you get to this whatever this pivot point this wonderful silver lining of aging, it kind of lets you dig down in those memories and, and try to, it's not reliving, but it's, it's being appreciative of what yeah. you've gone through in your life. Before we part company, can I take you through an exercise? Sure. So what you're going to do is you are going to make a fist with your left hand like this. And when I tell you, you're just going to press the knuckle on your index finger firmly Don't do it now, but when I tell you, you're just going to go like this and press firmly like that when I tell you. Like this, I'm going to do? Yeah. Am I doing it right? Right at the tip of the knuckle. At the tip of the knuckle. Okay. Yeah, so this is a very precise spot. Okay. All right. That's all the gesture? Okay. Okay, good. So you were talking about your dad, and do you have a particular memory, a specific memory with your dad where it was just a really amazing, rich moment? Do you have one of those? Oh, I mean, there's... There's many. So many. But is it one specific one? So, um, it was like at breakfast when he was talking to me in Spanish. He spoke a number of languages. And just, you know, that I know you can do this, baby doll, because that's nice. what he called me. So what I want you to do is just take a deep breath in, let it out for a moment. And I want you to go back to that moment as best as you can and just be at the table seeing your dad. When you're seeing him nod, good. Then I want you to hear what he's saying. And then notice where in your body you feel that loving feeling. And with your hand, that's the pointy one, not the fist one. I want you to imagine you have a volume knob that clockwise or counterclockwise can turn that feeling up and crank that feeling up so it gets stronger. So it starts filling your body, starts radiating from your head down to your toes. Now press that knuckle with your finger, press it firmly for about three seconds, and then let go and then crank that feeling up just a little bit more, a little bit more, and then press that knuckle again. And one last time, crank it up just a little bit more. So it's just radiating throughout your body and beyond. Press the knuckle one last time. 
Excellent. Open your eyes. Come on back to me. And so I'm going to show you what I did there in a moment. So feeling pretty good, right? Yes. So what I want you to do is think about a particular time you were late for a meeting. It was something important you were late. It kind of makes you feel not so good, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So take a deep breath, let that feeling go. And now I want you to make the fist and press the knuckle and notice instantly that amazing feeling comes back in your body. Yep. So anytime you need to feel that loving feeling with your dad, you just need to press that knuckle. It'll instantly come back Ooh. wherever, whenever you need it. I love that. Joan, thank you so much for being on the program. It was a joy having you. And dear listeners, the one thing I know for certain is that your two sets of twins are going to think about aging totally differently because you're vibrant and you're making a difference in the world. Oh, thank you so much, Umar. My pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating. And if you're looking for more tools, go to my website at nolimitselling.com. I've got a free mind training course there that's going to teach you some insights from the world of neuro-linguistic programming, and that is the fastest way to get better results. 